Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. I'm so glad to get back to our theology class. In previous episodes, we considered the importance of having an open mind to what the Bible teaches. That's the whole concept of biblical primacy. If I disagree with the Bible, then it is I who change, not the other way around. We also looked at a range of bibliologies, that is, understandings of what Scripture is. For this episode, I'm approaching Scripture as an inspired, authoritative collection of texts that are able to be harmonized to arrive at a particular theology on any given subject. Now, I want to recognize that there are theologies that change over time. That's the whole idea of biblical theology, and I will certainly be sensitive to that as we go through this class. But for today, we're looking at the subject of humanity itself, and this is something that certainly we get a better understanding of as time goes on, but not one that in any way contradicts what had come before. So what is a human being? In particular... We'll focus on two ends of the spectrum, creation and death. We'll see how the biblical view of humanity is rather exalted since we are made in God's image. We'll examine what the Bible teaches about death and resurrection and how the intermediate state is regularly labeled sleep. I've included extensive notes for this episode that you can access on your device or by going to restitutio.org. Here now is episode 164, Theology Part 3, Conditional immortality. Now we're, we're delving into specific doctrines. We're going to start with a doctrine called anthropology, and we're addressing the subject, the uh, perspective known as conditional immortality. And we want to start here because this is really where the Bible starts. The Bible starts with creation, right? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One of the things that God creates during that first chapter is people. He creates us. So there are typically two major ways of thinking about anthropology. Is on the one hand, that humans are the accidental result of chance events that occurred, like The origin of the universe is the result of a quantum undulation where nothing exploded into everything and then happened to have the particular physical laws that resulted in planet formation. And on this planet, there was, I don't know, a slime, an ooze, a pond, a puddle, something that eventually gave birth to very simple life, and then over time developed into more complex life. So that's one view, that's the naturalist view of anthropology. We are the end result of an unguided natural process that sort of like accidentally ended up to be the way it is. All right, that's that's one, and I, I'm picking like the strongest way I can say that is possible, okay? I know there are some Christians who believe in evolution and they, they say, well, God was guiding it or something. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about classical Darwinian, we're all an accident, and therefore, what are humans? What is your anthropology on that naturalist worldview? You're an advanced animal, period, full stop. Then there is 
the biblical idea, which is called Imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. These are very different mindsets. One is you're an accident, and the other is you're not just intentional. God wasn't intentional alone. He made you in His image. He made you, and, and as a result of that, you have inherent dignity and value that humans really matter. All right, so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read about how God personally created humans. Let's take a look at that verse. Maybe uh, somebody could read that out loud. You got it there, Jenna? Mm -hmm. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Right, so it says, Genesis 2 7 says that God formed the first human out of the dust of the ground. The image there is very intimate. There's a lot of intimacy there. If you look at the creation of everything else before the first man, God just says things. He says, let there be light, and there was light. God says, let there be land, and the, the waters gather together, and the land gather. You know, it's, it's very impersonal. When we get to the creation of humans, suddenly God stoops down. He forms the first man out of dust. He breathes, and you get like the, my picture of resuscitation, right? Like he, it's like giving the first human mouth to mouth. I mean, obviously it's not literal, God doesn't have a mouth, but like there's an intimacy here in the language of how God makes humans that's not there when it talks about God making the animals or God making the birds or the insects or other created things. Animals have the breath of life in them. It actually says that in Genesis. They have the breath of life in them. We know that, right? But it doesn't use this tender description to talk about that. So let's take a moment and consider God's human design. Okay, can we do that? Because I think when you just look at the, the science of the matter, it would be pretty impressive to you. So to start with, the average human has 22 square feet of skin, 206 bones, 25 feet of intestines, 45 miles of nerves, 100,000 miles of blood vessels. Humans can live from the hottest equatorial climates to the frigid polar ice caps. Skin is absolutely a brilliant design. It's a waterproof barrier. Do you think about that? If you go swimming and you didn't have any skin, stuff would just like go places, right? <laughs> float away. I mean, that would be bad, right? So you need a waterproof barrier, but it also lets water through, doesn't it? Like when we sweat, for example. So that's interesting. It allows for temperature regulation. And your skin, if you just like touch your skin, it has sensory input on it, right? All your skin, like from all over your body, even like that little part on the end of my elbow right here, which is really not sensitive at all. Like I could still feel it. Our skin has all these sensors in it. Fingers. Think about fingers. The, the way the fingers are designed is that they are so finely tuned that we can do things like paint. Think of how difficult it would be to make a robot arm, right? Even if you just, per, don't forget the brain or anything like that, just the robot arm and the hand that would be able to paint. 
it would be difficult. Uh, especially if it wasn't like attached to like an arm going back and forth like a printer. If it was like just a free hand that's going to paint, it would be extremely difficult. And if somebody achieved that level of precision on a robot hand, that person would be considered an expert in their field. And we would say that person is one of the finest robotics engineers around. Well, fingers are also able to do other things, aren't they? They're not just like able to make fine mo movements. Our fingers, we can use to make a fist and punch people. Think about that. I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. On the one hand, we can do very delicate things like maybe give somebody a massage or just like gently stroke the side of someone's face or you could beat them in with the same hand. I mean, think about boxers, right? They beat on people with these same fingers that other people use to do nice things. Then you have wrists. Think about your wrist for a moment. It enjoys 160 degrees of motion, which would enable you to throw a Frisbee, right Luke? Or ride a motorcycle. What about the ball and socket joint? Can you do this? Let me show you that again, ready? You're not even impressed. I mean, do you realize the kind of engineering that goes into a 360 degree motion? That's awesome. You can lift an object. I'm gonna, I'm gonna blow your mind again, you ready? I'm gonna lift an object from the ground and lift it above my head. Did you see what I did there? <laughs> it doesn't seem impressive to us because we are humans and we're used to being humans. But if you weren't a human and you were looking at like the design of the human body, you'd be like, wow, that was, that was incredible. Do it again. Let's <laughs> see, then we could do this stuff with the wrist. Somebody that's really good could probably flip it in the air and catch it with nothing falling out. Think about the heart. Hearts pump 2,000 gallons of blood each day. And your heart, unlike most of the rest of your body, never, ever takes a break. And if it does, you know what happens? You're dead. <laughs> the heart is always going. Your stomachs produce hydrochloric acid, powerful enough to digest solid metal. Your biped design allows for ridiculous range of activities, from climbing trees to running marathons to dancing ballet. Your ears pick up incredible range of sounds, from soft sounds that are just barely audible to be able to handle rock concerts where the speakers are blaring inside and the drums are mic'd and it's just like, you feel it in your chest, but you know what? Your ears can handle it. And yes, you have some, some hearing loss, <laughs> but then it comes back usually the next day, right? Uh, unless you do it over and over and then yeah, you're gonna have a problem. But think about the range of your ears and how well they hear. The human voice can whisper, speak, yell, sing, Right? Think about a great singer that you love. That's an incredible talent. Our eyes allow for nearly 180 degrees of horizontal vision in three dimensions and forget about our brains. They process everything effortlessly. You don't even think about how you're processing your senses from your skin, the smell from your nose, the sound from your ears, the vision from your eyes. You don't think about that. You're just like, huh, oh, it smells like food, right? I wonder who's eating food. Oh, there it is. 
right? We, we, we move right past all of the complicated sense and processing right to the reality itself. And that's normal for us because that's how cool our brains are. In fact, our brains are able to assemble a realistic perception of the external world. And we can think abstractly as well. We can imagine in our minds a creature or a shape that no one has ever seen before. We could just conjure up abstract images. And we're not limited to the present. We can think about the past, we can think about the present, we can imagine the future as well. In fact, our minds work as a simulator where we can run through possible scenarios about what we might do. Like for example, lunch. Should I go to Chick-fil-A? Should I go to Chipotle? Right, and you're running through the scenario. You're like, well, if I go to the Chipotle, I could get this. If I go to Chick-fil-A, I could get that. Imagining all the possibilities. Maybe I should go home. Maybe I should cook my own food. So our brains can do that. We can do art, science, relationships, sports. People are incredible. It's amazing what humans have created over the centuries. Think about Shakespeare. Think about your favorite song. Think about the Barj Khalifa skyscraper in Dubai that's more than a half mile tall. Think about the Dongyang Kunshan Grand Bridge in China that's more than 100 miles long. Can you imagine that? A bridge that's 100 miles long. We're able to ride bicycles. We can drive performance cars. Humans have made submarines. I just found out that a friend of mine fixes periscopes on submarines for a living. As a, a former student of this very college. That's all he does all day. I'm like, how many submarines are there and how many of their periscopes are breaking that you could do this as a full-time job? He's like, well, we've got 57 submarines in the area and I just fix them when they break. That's all he does. He just fixes the periscope, nothing else. Anyhow, humans are pretty cool is what I'm trying to say. We've charted a billion stars. We've cataloged over a million animal species. We are producers. Humans produce 130 million books, over 28 million songs, more than 2 million movies. We peer into space with telescopes and we can look at DNA through microscopes and with other technology. You got to admit that God did a pretty amazing job making us. That's my whole point, is that when it comes to anthropology, what I want to start with is that, hey, God did a good job making humans. I think he did a good job making animals, too. Clouds, I'm a big fan of clouds. We're not going to get into that. But clouds are awesome. Sunsets. I mean, God actually, to be honest, did a good job with everything. But this is not a lecture about everything. It's a lecture about humans. This is significant. God's creation... It's called good. Did you notice that? Look at Genesis chapter 2 again. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 4. It says, And God saw the light was good. Look at verse 10. God called the dry land earth. The waters were gathered together. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Look at the end of verse 12. After God made vegetation, God saw that it was good. Look at verse 18 at the end. After God makes a ruler for the day and for the night, he says, it was good. Once again, verse 21, at the very end of the verse, God saw that it was good after he made the sea creatures and all that. And then in verse 25, 
God made the beasts of the earth after their kinds. And at the end of the verse, once again, it says it was good. So we end up with, and then in the end of verse 31, it was very good. So we end up with seven times where God says it was good. This is significant because God made the universe and people the way he wanted. In other words, God did a good job at creation. I know this like probably sounds like totally obvious to you, but there are lots of Christian groups and other groups, philosophical groups throughout history that have said creation is either an accident or it is the result of some sort of fall. Now, we do believe in the fall. We do believe that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, that they did fall into sin, right? We believe that. But that happened after creation. That happened after Eden, after paradise. I'm telling you that there are other groups that say the reason why we have a physical world is because there was a fall in the celestial realm. And our world is the result of that fall. And the goal is to get out of our world and back into the heavenly or celestial realm. That's not biblical. The biblical idea is that God did a good job making our world. And when it comes to people, he did a good job making people. Now that we've talked about creation, let's jump to the other end and talk about death. When it comes to death, I want to offer you a simple definition for death. Death is the absence of life. You're going to want to write that down. Death is the cessation or the absence or the end of life. I realize different people have different theories on what death is and what happens at death, but just as a starting point for a definition, death is the absence of life. So whatever death means, it can't mean the same as alive. That's what I'm saying. So here's the thing though, you can use the Bible to support any view of death that you might possibly have. But once again, I said to you before, where is the preponderance of the evidence? We want to know where's the majority, where, where is it stacked up the most? So first of all, probably the most common view, i just start with that, is that uh, when people die, they go to heaven. They look in the face of God. It's pretty typical in Christianity today. In the movie, The Lion King, they said you would become a star, so I put that there for that. Other people think you'd become an angel. I've heard some Catholics say that, that when you die, you become an angel. A lot of people think that when you die, you're watching over relatives, but it's all summarized in this whole idea of going to heaven. And there are some verses people use, you don't have to write these down. Uh, there are some verses people use to establish that belief. Some people say you go to hell when you die and you're tortured in a fire forever. And here are some verses that they use to support that belief. Other people, notably Roman Catholics, believe that in between heaven and hell, there is a realm called purgatory where you're tortured in a fire until your sins are purged. So you go to purgatory to purge your sins, and then you end up going to heaven anyhow. And these are verses that they use. Notice that the last verse there on the list is not in your Bible. That's uh, a verse that's found in the Catholic Bible. Number four is that when you die, you become a ghost. You become a disembodied spirit. You live on the earth. You haunt houses. You're not really able to interact very much unless it's Halloween or something. I don't know. I'm kind of making fun of that. But this is a belief that a lot of people have. And here are some verses that they might use to support that belief. There's about a billion people that believe in reincarnation. And that's the idea that when you die, you come back as another creature, but your memory is wiped. So like you were 
an animal before this or a human before this, but you just don't remember it. And that's the idea of reincarnation. And look at all the supporting verses that we can find to affirm this teaching. Obviously, you can't affirm all these teachings because they contradict each other. And then you have like a lot of secular people, atheists, for example, they teach that when you die, you're dead, period. You're gone, your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences are gone forever, that's it. Maybe you have a lasting legacy, maybe, maybe you were so successful in life that they made a statue of you and they put you in a town center. And you know what's gonna happen in 100 years? They're gonna decide that you were a bigot and take it down anyhow. Because that's what we do <laughs> as things change over time. So that's the idea that you're just gone. And then here's idea number seven. By the way, when you're doing a list in Bible theology, you always put your preferred answer last. <laughs> so this is what I believe. And this is what the Bible in fact teaches, that you're asleep when you die, that you're unconscious, but able to be resurrected. So you're in an unconscious state. We call that the sleep of the dead. It's also called conditional immortality. That's the idea that immortality depends on resurrection. And here are the verses that support the sleep of the dead. You see what I was saying about preponderance of the evidence? Yeah, so that's why I go with that one. I mean, I know that there are some verses that you can use to support these other ones, but that's just like, that's just like embarrassingly impressive, right? <laughs> so let's look at some of those verses. I don't have time to look at all these verses with you, but I want to at least look at some. All right, so these are verses that teach that you go to sleep when you die, okay? Now, it's important to realize that obviously this is not literal. You don't literally sleep because why? Sleeping people breathe. Dead people don't breathe. Sleeping people sometimes snore, or they have dreams, or they wake up, right? Dead people are just dead. But this is the dominant metaphor that the Bible uses to talk about sleep. Now look, whatever sleep means in the metaphor, right? It cannot mean that you're awake because that's the opposite of being asleep. And so therefore the Bible would be using a metaphor that meant the opposite of what it meant, okay? So that, which is just ridiculous. So we see all these verses, right? First Kings 2.10, it says, David slept with his fathers. It's talking about when David died. It says, David slept with his fathers and he was buried in a tomb. 1 Kings 11.43, Solomon slept with his fathers. 1 Kings 14.20, Jeroboam slept with his fathers. I could have just given you 20 more slept with his fathers verses. All right, this is not talking about a little kid might sleep with their dad, like wake up in the middle of the night and go sleep with mom and dad or something. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about when you die, but it's using the word sleep. Job 3.11 to 14 says, death is lying down quietly in sleep and at rest. That's what it says death is. Job is miserable, he wants to die. He's like, I wish I died, because if I died, I would be asleep, I would be at rest, I would be quiet. Then Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6. Let's, let's uh, take a look at what that says. These are some of the, the strongest verses, which is why I want to read them. All right, Ecclesiastes 9, 5 says, For the living know they will die, but the dead know what? Nothing. Nothing. 
The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Ecclesiastes 9.5 says, the dead know nothing. Why don't they know anything? Because they're unconscious. Just like when you're asleep, if you're like really asleep and not just like half asleep, it's like time travel. Like the moment you fall asleep, the next moment you're three hours later or eight hours later. I don't know how much you sleep. But uh, uh, you just, you don't know anything and you just like fast forward. Uh, verse nine is the part where you're supposed to enjoy your wife or obviously your husband, if you're a woman. But then verse 10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So in the grave, which is Sheol, the Hebrew word for Sheol, there is no thought, there is no work, there is no knowledge, there is no wisdom. So what does that mean? Does that mean that you are... Lazy and stupid? No, it just means you're not awake. You're unconscious. You're asleep. You're out of it. So that's Ecclesiastes 9.10. Psalms 6, 4, and 5 say that in death, in the grave, people have no remembrance of God. Look, if you go to heaven when you die, you better have remembrance of God. You, and you should be praising God. But Psalm 6, 5 says, no, you're not. Psalm 13.3 says, help me or else I'll sleep the sleep of death. The psalmist is praying to God, God, get me out of this, or else I'll sleep the sleep of death. Psalm 115, 17 says, The dead do not praise the Lord. Psalm 146, 3 and 4 say that when you die, your breath, another translation is spirit, but it's talking about breath, departs, you return to the earth. In that very day, in that very moment, your plans perish. I mean, that makes sense, right? The moment you die, whatever you were planning on doing that day, it's not going to happen. Then Jesus himself in John 11, when he's talking about Lazarus, Lazarus has di had died. Jesus calls Lazarus asleep. Do you remember what the disciples said? Oh, good. He's sleeping. He'll get better. Right? And Jesus said, uh, I'm talking about death. <laughs> and he says, I'm glad you weren't there because he, maybe Jesus thought they would have been cause to doubt if they saw Lazarus die. But anyhow, Jesus goes, he says, I go that I may awake him. And that's what he does. Jesus goes and he raises him from the dead. Lazarus isn't sick and sleep in his bed. He's dead and buried in a tomb when Jesus shows up. And that's the kind of sleep we're talking about here. In Acts 2, 29 and 34, it says, David died and was buried and did not ascend into heaven. In Acts 7, 60, Stephen cried out and then fell asleep. He didn't get knocked unconscious by the stones. He died. He was killed. He was martyred for his faith. But the scripture says he fell asleep because that's the words they use to describe it. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says that some of the 500 who saw Jesus have fallen asleep, which means, of course, they have died. Now, death is like time travel. Death is like time travel. If you fall asleep in a car, let's say you're on, have you ever done this? You're on a long car ride, I'm sure. You wanna to go to sleep, right? So that three hours later you can wake up and you're already there and you didn't have to wait. For, you know, it's like time travel. Or I always like to tell the story about when I had my wisdom teeth out and I was in the doctor's office. Has, has any of you ever had surgery or been put out? Yeah, you have, okay, yeah. I was in the doctor's office 
the, I think it was a dentist, some sort of person that rips teeth out of your skull. As you can see, I'm not super fond of dentists. But um, I was in there in the chair and they, and they injected me with something, I don't know what it was. And they said, count backwards or count up or something, I don't know, I started counting. But then they said, you can go in the other room. I said, okay, so I guess this is gonna take a while for this stuff to kick in. I'll go in the other room for, how, I don't know how long, and then they'll bring me back. I go in the other room, and it's just like right attached to where I was. And my wife comes in, and she says to me, how was it? And I'm like, how was what? She said, they did it. They, they, took, they took your wisdom teeth out. I said, no, they didn't. I was just counting, and he said to come in here, and then I started feeling around in my mouth, and I had all these gauze like a chipmunk, you know, <laughs> holding my cheeks out, and I'm like, they did it. <laughs> I could have been in there for 10 years. It was like that. I have no idea how long. It was probably an hour. I, it was like that. It was so fast that I had no recollection. And that's why the scriptures use the metaphor of sleep to talk about death. There's no consciousness of passing time. It's like the moment you die, from your perspective, the next moment you're at the resurrection. From everyone else's perspective, you've been dead 100 years or 20 years, and it's really sad. From your perspective, it's like, whoop up, down and back up again. And that's important. That's important to have that perspective in mind when you're reading scripture. Think about somebody like King David. He's been in his grave for 3,000 years. He died 1,000 years before Christ. Do you think David's bored? No, he's not bored because he's like me in the chair, right? Where you're passed out the next... From David's perspective, it's like he, he, he died. The last thing he was doing was telling Solomon how to handle some of the affairs in the kingdom. And then he died. His next waking moment is going to be the resurrection. But from our perspective, it's like been a really long time. Let's look at just a few more verses, really important ones about resurrection. The first one up is Daniel 12, verse 2. Go ahead and flip there in your Bible. Daniel 12, 2. I'm going to put these three down here. Daniel 12, 2, John 5, 28 to 29, and 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 55. The verses I already showed you, that you already wrote down, teach that death is sleep. That's the sleep of the dead idea. These verses here teach that resurrection is the way out of death, okay? And these verses you might already be familiar to some degree. Dale 12, 2 says, And many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So you see here, the way Daniel describes the dead, or actually this is an angel speaking to Daniel, uh, the way he describes the dead is that the dead are sleeping in the dust of the earth. Just like it said in Genesis that Adam was made from the dust, and then after he sinned, to dust you shall return, Genesis chapter 3. So then these people are sleeping in the dust, and if, if you wait long enough, the human body basically just turns into dust. It, it breaks down and it turns back into dust or dirt. And so in Daniel 12, 2, it says, those who sleep in the dust will awake. They will come back to life. And so resurrection is wake up from the sleep. And then uh, I'll just tell you what these other verses say. In John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus says that 
many of those who are in the tombs will hear his voice. That's what it says right here. So when Jesus says, you're going to hear the voice of the Son of Man, and they're going to come out of their tombs. And it's a, it's a deliberate echo of Daniel 12, picked up in John 5, 28. So what we learn from John 5 is that that resurrection happens through Jesus. That he's involved in that. And it's actually his voice that's going to go out. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 55 talks about how we were sown corruptible, but we will be raised incorruptible. We were sown, we were put in the ground in, in a mortal condition, but we will be raised to immortality. Which brings me to this word that I started the lecture with, conditional immortality. What does immortal or immortality mean? Mortal means you can die. Immortal means you cannot die. Simple as that. So this I prefix here, that in English that means not or against, right? And then immortality has the word mortal in it. So that means you can die. So this literally means cannot die. So obviously if we die, we're not immortal. But the key to immortality is resurrection. And we learn that from 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 55, that resurrection is how we put on immortality. That means that after the resurrection, you cannot die. That means if you get stabbed with a knife, you will not die. If you get shot with a gun, you will not die. If you get a terrible disease, I don't know if there would be terrible diseases, but like you would not die, okay? Because you're immortal. By definition, immortal beings cannot die. God is immortal. However, Jesus died for our sins, right? So there's a little difference there. Angels, it seems like there is a judgment for angels as well. So we might have to debate whether they're mortal or immortal. When does resurrection happen? 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to like 23-ish. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter of the New Testament. So if you're going to write a paper on resurrection, do business with 1 Corinthians 15. It's the best. Uh, there are plenty of other places to talk about it. 1 Thessalonians 4, like you were saying, whoever that was, Matthew 24, I think it was your idea originally. There are some other places, but 1 Corinthians 15 is really a slugger. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then, this is the key part, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. All right? So this definitively tells us right here that resurrection happens when Christ returns. And there are other places that we can look at for that. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4:13 to 17 also says that. We're not going to read it though. And Jesus himself says it repeatedly in John chapter 6, 39 to 40, and 44 and 54, Jesus says that he will raise them up on the last day. Jesus says, since he's the one that he's going to do it, he says that he's going to do it. He's going to raise them up. He takes credit for that. So we have a bunch of verses that talk about how the dead are asleep, which you've already written down. We have 
a few verses here that talk about resurrection as the way to get out of death. And we know that that resurrection happens when Christ returns. Now, on the question of when does Christ return, that verse you mentioned, Jenna, says nobody knows. Now, I've got news for you. People think they know. You ever notice that? Do you know the latest prediction for when Jesus is coming back? When? When? Yeah, do you know when? No, I'm not saying when. So you don't know? Okay. The, the, the most recent one that I've heard is in five days. Yeah, well, people have been taking the days that the storms have happened and, like, referring them to the Bible, like, verses in the Bible and saying that because these three storms have happened, it's coming soon. I don't know, but I can tell you this. If you look up on Wikipedia predictions for the second coming, you will see an extensive list of hundreds of people over hundreds of years. And do you know what they all have in common? They were all wrong. And I don't know what it is, why somebody just predicted September 23rd. Maybe because of the storms. I don't know, the hurricanes we just had. Uh, I remember when I, was, when I was going to school in Boston, there was this guy that predicted May 16th. And he got all kinds of money from donors. And I would be riding the subway and there'd be all these signs like the end of the world, May 16th, buy my book. You know, and it was just like unbelievable. And then just like a, a year or two ago, we had uh, the blood moon. Do you remember that? What, what was that, like a year ago? Two years ago? I think it was more two. Two, two three years ago, we had, we had this moon that was going to turn a different color because of just the way the sun and the earth lined up and everything. And I had a friend, and he bought a book, and it was called The Blood Moon or whatever, and it's the end of the world. And he got really embarrassed when, after he proclaimed it was the end of the world, we all went to work the next day, you know? <laughs> and so, look, this happens over and over again. In fact, the Church of God itself started after an event where somebody had predicted the end of the world would happen. And it failed. And so a lot of groups ended up start, starting out out of that main group because this prediction, like if, if Jesus had actually come back then, we wouldn't be here, right? <laughs> so... Um, what is my point? My point is, you're right. No one knows. Jesus said he didn't even know. And so, like, whatever you do, don't set a date for the coming back of Christ. Because, like, it's just so embarrassing for the rest of us when you get it wrong, <laughs> okay? Um, it's just bad news. He'll come back, or the resurrection will happen when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, we really don't know. Sometimes we think we know. I'm sure a lot of people, when they saw Hitler persecuting the Jews and massacring them and exterminating them, they were like, he's got to be the Antichrist, right? I'm sure back in the 1940s, that's what people were saying. But you know what? He wasn't. I mean, he was evil, but he, I mean, he did a lot of evil things, but he, he actually wasn't the final Antichrist because you know what happens to the Antichrist? Jesus comes back and kills him. So he couldn't have been the Antichrist. All right, so as far as that goes, don't do that. There's some dangers to believing in an intermediate conscious state that I want to mention. Some dangers to conscious intermediate state. It makes the resurrection unimportant. I mean, think about it. If the moment you die, you go to heaven, who cares about resurrection? You're in heaven. 
if the moment you die, you turn into a ghost and haunt old buildings. That sounds like way more interesting than being asleep in a tomb somewhere, you know what I mean? So what it does is it just, it just turns, overturns this uh, biblical teaching about resurrection. Another issue is that it opens the door for spiritualism. And this is something that the Bible is very strongly against. Very strongly against. All over the prophets, you read warnings. Do not contact the dead. Don't get involved with evil spirits and idolatry and... What was the other example? Uh, I think it's called necromancy, right? Where, you, where you're trying to contact the dead. And, and people do this today. You know, they get the Ouija board out and they try to get a message from the dead person. Uh, recently, uh, just last week, I got a course list from my local high school and these are like adult education courses and i was just looking through it to see if there was anything in there of interest and they have a class talking to those who are beyond and you can go to the local high school and talk to dead people and they have a class on tarot cards how to read tarot cards and predict your future and they had another one on like meditation and I was just like, I got so upset. I was just like, there's not one Christian class in there, in there not one Muslim class, not one Hindu class, not one Buddhist class, right? So like every major world religion is completely excluded, but you can go worship dead spirits and take like a class on, on spiritualism. So you know what I did? I applied to be a teacher there. And I'm like, hey, let me do Life of Jesus. Let me do a class on the life of Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, great. If you don't believe in Jesus, great. But he's an important person, so people should know about him. So I'm waiting to hear back from them. But I, I suspect they'll say no. But if you believe that the dead are actually awake and accessible, that's going to open the door for spiritualism. And that is a nasty place to be. In Leviticus, it says that people who whore after mediums and necromancers will be cut off. Notice the language that God uses there. He doesn't say go after, he says whore after. I mean, that's strong, obviously, sexual terminology that God is using to, to describe how he feels cheated when people are going after foreign spiritual power other than going to God himself. In another place, in Leviticus chapter 20, it says uh, that any medium or necromancer among God's people will be put to death. He doesn't have any tolerance for it at all. You remember this story about Saul? when he went to see the witch of Endor, just before he died, and he said, well, I just need to speak to Samuel. Samuel's already dead, right? And then what happens right after that? He dies himself, right? I mean, it's bad news. You wanna stay away from it. If you, if you agree with scripture and recognize that the dead are asleep, you're not gonna do this. You're not gonna try to contact the dead. You're not gonna be taken advantage of that way. As far as advantages to believing in the sleep of the dead, there are a few advantages. Uh, we could say that it's, it's comforting to know that our loved one is just resting in peace, right? We have that saying, RIP, rest in peace, right? I don't know about you, but like, I don't want grandma looking down on me, knowing what I'm doing in the bedroom. You know what I'm saying? Like, that to me is not, that's not comforting. You know, I don't, I don't want grandma in the shower with me. You know, like if grandma's dead, she needs to just, be minor, but there, that's part of that belief. Look, there are a lot of people that believe that when you die, you go to heaven and you're looking down on your loved ones and it's like, 
I don't really want somebody invading my pride. Like, if God does it, he's my maker. He knew, he knew me all along. You know what I mean? But like, Grandma? Come on. <laughs> so it's an advantage of this belief uh, that the Bible teaches the sleep of the dead is that it's comforting. This person is out of it. They're not in pain. They're not suffering. Also, you don't need to pray a million times hoping to change God's mind. You don't have to write down all the words that I'm writing here. You just summarize it in your own words or write down all the words, whatever you want. Uh, and you can avoid abuses by the church. For example, in the uh, 1500s, there were indulgence salesmen who would travel around and they would say, look, if you give us money, we will get your loved ones out of purgatory and into heaven. And you know what people did? They gave them money, lots of money. And that money went to pay for the gorgeous buildings that are now in the Vatican in Rome, Italy. Seriously, that's how they funded those buildings was by lying to people. I mean, maybe they thought it was true, but it still was a lie that giving the church money will get your loved ones out of purgatory sooner. So if you believe that dead people are asleep, are you going to give them money? No. What do you mean they're not in purgatory in the first place? And here's another thing that people do. They'll pray and they'll pray and they'll pray every day. Oh, please, please let my loved one go into heaven or go to be saved or whatever. And it's like, look, from a, the biblical perspective of the sleep of the dead, you take your last breath, you die. That's it. Whatever judgment day holds is sealed at that point. God's going to do whatever he's going to do. You can pray about it, but like that person is dead. So you don't need to stress about it. Like whatever, whether it's good or whether it's bad, there's no changing it once we find um, the end. All right. So why then are so many Christians confused about what happens when we die? Why are so many people taught that we go to heaven? One word, Plato. Plato was an ancient Greek philosopher a few hundred years before Christ, and he taught that the soul is immortal. And the name of the book that he taught that in is called The Phaedo. If you want to look it up and read it on your own, uh, it talks about how death is really a friend because it releases your soul from your body so that it can truly contemplate philosophy and truth and all these kinds of things like that. So I don't really have time to develop this for you, but I can tell you that Plato was extremely influential for thinking people in the ancient world. And his ideas very much infiltrated Christianity and ended up causing people to believe that they're not asleep, that they're actually awake when they die. All right, I think that's about it for this. Uh, conditional immortality, once again, is that immortality depends on a condition. So you have conditional versus natural. All right, so conditional immortality is the idea that the way you get immortality is based on the condition of resurrection. Natural immortality is the idea that by birth you are an immortal being. All right, these are two very different points of view. The Bible teaches what's called conditional immortality. That's the idea that the only way to get out of death is to be raised from the dead, whereas Plato and the philosophers taught natural immortality, which is the idea that you are going to live no matter what, whether you're good or you're bad, your soul continues to live on. 
Okay, so those are two very different points of view. And what we're teaching here today is conditional immortality. Well, that's it for this episode. Stay tuned next time where we handle some of the commonly misunderstood verses on this subject and dig a little deeper. Additionally, I have a whole bunch of other posts on Restitutio about conditional immortality, so I want to draw your attention to that. I've got links to that in the show notes for this episode, including a couple of sermons and lectures from other classes on this subject or a very similar subject. For an excellent podcast on conditional immortality, I highly recommend Rethinking Hell. It's a, a website, rethinkinghell.com, and podcast that focuses on hell, but also conditional immortality to a large degree. Also, we got a new review. Nick, the Biblical Unitarian, writes, I love this podcast. Sean and his team do a terrific job with lively discussions. There's a great balance of theological material and practical life applications to better live out our faith. I live in an area with very few Biblical Unitarians to fellowship with, so I always appreciate the content I can find here. No matter what your theological leanings are, this is a great listen. Sean encourages dialogue among various positions. One of my favorite podcasts. Thanks so much, Nick, for taking the time to write in. These reviews are such a help for getting Restitutio to pop up in searches when people are looking for Bible-related podcasts. Also, I got a comment in on my last episode, 163, Jesus, God's Agent, from Bill Schlegel. He writes, Moses and the prophets were sent by God, i.e. God's agents. But Jesus, as God's son, is God's sent one par excellence. That Jesus is the human Messiah sent by God who represents God is a key theme of the Gospel of John. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John 5.30. The one sent is equal in power, authority, not in essence to him who sends, because the one sent has been granted that authority by the sender. This is why I don't agree, Sean, that Thomas, quote-unquote, unambiguously calls Jesus God in John 20, 28. There is only one God in the Gospel of John, the Father. When you see me, you see the Father. When Thomas sees the once dead, now alive Jesus, the Lord Messiah, he sees the Father. He, quote-unquote, sees the Father. Thomas knows that his God raised Jesus from the dead. If there is anything that is clear in the Gospel of John, it is that Jesus is not God, but rather he is sent by God. Schlegel continues, Neither does Hebrews 1.8 unambiguously call Jesus God, nor does Psalm 45 unambiguously call the Davidic king God. The Hebrew, for sure, and the, and Greek, the best I can see, can be understood as your throne is God forever, meaning your authority to rule is forever, because it is God. Similarly, God is my rock means God is my confidence and strength. My portion is Yahweh means that what I care about in life are the things of God. The phrase, Kisacha Elohim, does not have to be understood as a direct address vocative, and therefore is not unambiguous. Compare JPS translation, Thy throne given of God is forever and ever. 
Also, if you take Hebrews 1.8 as a reference to calling Jesus God, then you are equivocating on the meaning of God in the very next verse, just like biblical Unitarians accuse Trinitarians of doing. This means we are down to zero unambiguous references to Jesus as God in the New Testament. Further on, Psalm 45 and Hebrews 1.8, your throne authority is God is agency language. By what authority do you do these things? We all know the answer. Well, Bill, you make some interesting points, and I certainly recognize that these are two possibilities that I have heard before and personally don't find them as convincing as what I laid out here in this past episode. But I recognize that it, it is certainly a possibility that you know when Thomas calls Jesus my Lord and my God, that he's recognizing God within Jesus— in line with John 14, it certainly is a possibility. It is it is a little awkward in the Greek, though, because there is a single person address, and afto there, uh, this the dative singular Greek pronoun for him. And so, yeah, I mean, if that wasn't there, then I think I, I would be more willing to go along with you. Hebrews 1.8, Psalm 45... Uh, God is your throne as opposed to your throne, oh God. I Honestly, I I think I could go either way with that. I just I would just need to think about it a little bit more. I can at least grant that your point is sustained, that there are no unambiguous references to Jesus as God in the New Testament. Perhaps I need to modify my language a little bit there, although I do see this as a reality throughout Scripture. I'd be curious to hear what your take is on the other examples I gave where people do speak in God's stead, certainly the angel of the Lord, the prophets of old, and Psalm 82, John 10, 34, where Jesus says, anyone who receives the word of God can be called God in this secondary sense. I don't think it's equivocating in Hebrews 1, 8 versus Hebrews 1, 10 to say God in the, in the first case means God in a representational sense, and the second case means God as in the Father, because it really is the same God in each case. In the, in the former case where Hebrews 1.8, Jesus is representing God and he's being called God the Father because he represents God the Father. It's not like Jesus is a second kind of God. He's not God. He represents God and so he's getting called God as God's representative. Just like the same, just like the example of the FBI. The FBI shows up at the door and they knock and they don't say, Agent Smith, open up. No, they say FBI. And you come out and you say, hey, are you the FBI? And they say, yes. But are they really the FBI? No. They're not the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They're an agent for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So what do we have here? We, we can easily see how we can slip between the one the agent represents and the agent him or herself. And I think that's just exactly what, what happens in Hebrews 1.8 to 1.10, if the agent says to you, I'm bringing you into the FBI, and you, you could say to them, well, just a minute ago, you said you were the FBI, so I am already with the FBI. That's ridiculous, because you know that although this person represents the FBI, they are not technically, ontologically, if you will, the FBI. I mean, they are just a single individual representative or agent of the FBI, and the FBI is the whole group as a whole. Um, and so, Jesus can be called God because he is God's representative. 
He's doing the work of God. He's speaking the words of God. He's accomplishing the will of God. He is doing what God wants done, just like that FBI agent is doing what the Bureau wants done, so that agent is the FBI in that situation. Now, if that FBI agent went off the rails and started pursuing some sort of crazy criminal behavior, then that person is no longer functioning in that role. But here's the crazy thing about Jesus. He always did the Father's will. So he's the perfect agent who always represented God on earth. So that's how I understand it. I'm certainly open to the possibility of growing here, and I, and I welcome Mr. Schlegel's insights into this subject, especially since he has fresh eyes. So thanks so much for writing in. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.